I can, oh, Snow White's staying in the background there. Like I can see the colour in my periphery, this problem with glasses. Um, for those of us who were here last week, uh, I'm glad that you're back. You made it through Rowan saying sex 136 times and didn't put you off coming back. That's wonderful. For those who weren't here last week, this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, it's Paul's positive presentation of how we can glorify God with our bodies. Uh, chapters 5 and 6, Paul's given the negative of sexual immorality. He said, flee from that. Now in chapter 7, we see the positive. Recognizing that our bodies matter, that we're not our own, that we've been bought with a price, we should flee sexual immorality. And that leaves us with two options relationally. Either we live as celibate singles, singles who are not having sex, or we get married. And then we can honour our spouse with our bodies. There are two options, only two options. Today, as we finish off this chapter, Paul wants to say, it really doesn't matter which of those options you choose. Single? Married? Who cares? Now, that might sound a bit controversial to you, so make sure your Bible's open there so that you can check along and see that this is what God is saying to us tonight. It doesn't matter what words I'm saying, I'm trying to expose to you what God is saying through this book of 1 Corinthians. So check along with us as we go. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. As we go, I should mention at the start, uh, there will be a question time at the end of the sermon tonight. So if, if there is anything controversial, anything that you want to ask a question about, send that through to the number on the screen. And we'll have a go at thinking through that after the sermon. Let's have a look at 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17. However, each one must live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already called when circumcised? He shouldn't undo his circumcision. Circumcision doesn't matter. Uncircumcision doesn't matter. But keeping God's commands does. Each person should remain in the life situation in which he was called. Now, it might not hit you immediately, but this has to be one of the most amazing paragraphs that Paul ever wrote. It's hard to imagine something sounding more un-Jewish than what we find here. Circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. Circumcision was a key sign of membership in God's covenant community. It was a key marker for the Jews that they were part of God's chosen people. To the Jew, you could only be saved if you had been circumcised. Yet Paul, himself a circumcised Jew, himself part of God's special people, he says here, who cares about circumcision? It means nothing. Now, that one might not hit us so much today, but have a look at the next one that he goes on to. Verse 21, it gets a bit more radical for us. Were you called while a slave? Shouldn't be a concern to you. If you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. See what he's saying? He's saying, are you a slave? It is what it is. Don't worry about it. Are you a free person? It is what it is. Don't worry about it. In these two examples, Paul takes the two great social dividers of his time. All of society was divided between those who were Jews and non-Jews, those who were slaves and free. And he's saying about these key social markers, they don't matter. How can he say that? Well, notice his overarching point. He said it once in verse 17, again in verse 20. He's going to repeat it a third time in verse 24. Repetition always helps us see what the author's trying to say. Have a look at verse 24. Brothers, each person should remain with God in whatever situation he was called. 
it's important that we pick up here on what this language of calling means. Uh, do I get out my mobile phone and wait for God to give me a buzz? No. Uh, phones weren't there back in first century Corinth. It's okay. Uh, what, God, what Paul is saying here in this language of calling, it's also, unfortunately, not what a lot of Christians use the language of calling to mean today. You might have been around Christian circles and heard people speak of calling as something that you have to go out and find for yourself, something you have to feel, a calling from God. I don't think you find that meaning of calling anywhere in the Scriptures. What we do find calling mean, what, what we find here in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, the language of call is the language of an invitation or a summons. Now, we still have some sentences where we use it like that today. If you get called to the principal's office, if you get called up for jury duty, that's the language of called in the Bible. Don't just take my word for it. Let's have a look back at 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9. Let's let Paul define his words. Right back at the start of the letter, he says, God is faithful. You were called by Him into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, how does Paul define this word? Well, calling is God's invitation into a relationship. It's God's invitation to share in everything that belongs to the Son, to Jesus, to be united with Him in fellowship. As we'll see when we move into chapters 10 and 11 over the next few weeks, to be in that fellowship with Jesus, that means to benefit in all the things that His death has achieved, to be united with Him in death and to gain forgiveness, eternal inheritance, victory over Satan and death. So when Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 is referring to the time when these people were called, well, he simply means the time when you became Christian. When they heard God's invitation to this relationship, and obey the summons to have Him as their God, Father, Son, Spirit. So what Paul's saying, verse 17 to 24 here, is you don't need to change your social status or your ethnicity to be welcomed by God, to become a Christian. With God, that doesn't matter. You can be a good Jewish Christian, you can be a good non-Jewish Christian, you can be a good enslaved Christian, you can be a good free Christian. In the context of this chapter, the reason Paul's bringing in these examples is saying, you can be a good married Christian and you can be a good single Christian. Notice the way he bears this out in verse 25. About virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I do give an opinion as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Now, just to pause quickly on Paul's language there, we've seen this throughout chapter 7, and I've heard that a few of you have been discussing this in Connect Groups, that's a great thing to discuss. Paul doesn't mean here uh, that we should take these words any less seriously. When Paul says throughout this chapter that he has a command from the Lord, he's speaking specifically of Jesus, and that there exists some teaching written down, orally transmitted, where Jesus spoke into this particular issue. So, when he said earlier, Jesus says you shouldn't divorce, he knew a quote, and people would be able to look back to that. Now, when Paul says that it's his own opinion, it's still the opinion of one who is uh, given all the apostolic authority, all the authority of God, one who back in chapter 2 of Corinthians is filled with the Spirit of God and therefore says, I have the mind of Christ. So, when we read here of Paul's opinion, we receive it not just as the opinion of another man, but as the wisdom of God. So, what's his wisdom? Verse 26, Therefore, I consider this to be good because of the present distress. It's fine for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to become loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Don't seek a wife. 
Paul's point is pretty clear. Single? Married? Who cares? The trouble is that we often do care, don't we? This issue is loaded with so much emotional freight. We spend so much time emotionally investing in the transition from singleness to marriage, uh, thinking through the difficulties of what that involves. We, we're emotionally connected to this issue. What I want to suggest for you this evening is that a lot of that concern is conditioned by our culture. It comes from outside of us, from expectations of our society, from expectations of other Christians, rather than necessarily from within us. Culturally, we're conditioned to a preference towards marriage. Or, perhaps more precisely, we're conditioned to have a preference against celibate singleness. Which, remember, for the Christian, there are only two options. Either singleness without having sex, or marriage honouring your spouse with your body. Now, this preference comes through in pop culture, whether that be Disney movies, or movies like The 40-Year-Old Virgin that kind of brings shame on still being a virgin that late in life, or shows where the single person is stereotypically the loser who has to be transformed in some way to be worthy of a relationship. We think of the singles as the crazy cat lady or the the hermit who's living in his house, shaking off all the kids who want to come and play in his front yard. These are the stereotypes that pop culture gives us. But this preference, it's not restricted just to pop culture. We find it and perhaps even amplify it within the church. We have ways of speaking within Christian circles which reinforce the message. I think I put the message that comes to us this way. Singleness is a problem that needs to be solved. That's the way we talk. As if singleness is a problem that needs to be solved. You hear it in all the questions and throwaway lines, you know. What you need is a a good wife to look after you. What you need is a good man who will care for you. God's got someone out there for you. It's okay. You'll make a great husband for someone one day. You're great wife material. You're a wonderful, beautiful woman. Why are you still single? I wonder if you've ever heard any of those questions. If you've thought them and asked them. There's a negative undertone that can come through in that last question, why are you still single? It, it assumes that there actually probably is something wrong with a single person. Although you might not see it, there must be some reason that they've been rejected up to this point. I've been on the receiving end of those kind of assumptions and those negative lines. I've been on the receiving end of uh, some element of distrust simply because I'm single. I wonder if you've had that experience as well. Why do we care so much? I want to give you three reasons tonight and my critique of them as we go. Reason number one why we care is that we've believed the lie that sexual release is a basic human need. Losing your virginity, our culture tells us, it's a big deal. It's like a secret rite of passage into normal, functional society. Our world believes that sexual stimulation is a basic human need, alongside food and water. We need them to live. Now, I hope that after last week, you'll readily agree that that is just a gross lie. As a human, you do not need sex. Sex is for marriage. Individuals don't need sex, marriages do need sex. Sex is God's good design to help bind two individuals together into an intimate union that will help children to flourish in society. But having believed this lie that sex is a need, 
when we get to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7 to 9, we come up with a weird interpretation that the gift of singleness is something that only some people have, some kind of asexuality, a lack of sexual drive and desire. Let's have a look at those verses, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. I wish that all people were just like me, but each has his own gift from God, one person in this way, another in that way. What's the gift in this verse? The gift isn't some special power to deal with singleness. Notice that everyone has a gift in this verse. Uh, For some, the gift is the single estate, the the place of being single right here, right now. For others, the gift is marriage. Both are good gifts from a loving father. Neither singleness nor marriage is a problem that needs to be solved. You can be fully Christian whether married or single. Now, you, you hear that and you say, but Lachlan, have a look at verses 8 and 9, don't they say that only those who can control their sexual desires... Uh, Only those who can't control their sexual desires should marry. Let's have a look at those verses. I say to the unmarried and to widows, it's good for them to remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with desire. Now, I'll admit, at first reading there, it does seem like it's saying something along the lines of, okay, there are certain people who just have this special ability of self-control. They don't feel the sexual desire. Okay, that's the gift of singleness. But let me tell you why I don't think that's what's going on here. See, all of us as Christians are being called to exercise self-control. Just two chapters on in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 25, write it down and look it up later. Paul will call us to imitate the athlete who is self-controlled in his training. I don't know if you've been watching the Olympics too this past week, I've enjoyed watching some of the table tennis and some of the other great sports you don't see any other time. Uh, Those athletes put in long, hard hours of training. That takes self-control. And when we get to chapter 9, we'll see that Paul's calling us to be just like them. So Paul doesn't have this mindset of, okay, either you have self-control or you don't. He calls us all to grow in that self-control. The same thing happens over in Galatians, where self-control is a gift of the Spirit something that all Christians are expected to have and be growing in. 2 Peter 1, we're urged to add self-control to our faith, to our godliness. So the broader biblical picture is that self-control is not something that some have and others don't. It's that self-control is something we all need to grow in. So in light of that, let me offer you an equally valid translation of verse 9. This is what I think it's trying to say and other English versions will give this to you. But, If they are not exercising self-control, they should marry. It's better to marry than to burn. Do you notice the difference in the translation there? It's only slight, uh, but it's moving from saying, if they do not have self-control, to saying, no, this is actually about an um, an, an active action in the present. Active action doesn't sound good, but I can't think of a better way to say that right now. It's about saying they're not currently exercising self-control. That's what's going on. And if that is the case, perhaps if someone is currently in sexual immorality, they're not exercising the self-control that they should be, which we know in the church in Corinth that was happening. If that's the case, Paul's saying they should marry. Then they can have sex within marriage and honour one another with their bodies and live out God's good plan for sex. It's better to get married in that context than to continue in sexual immorality and face God's burning judgment. So if you're here tonight, and you're in this situation where you are currently living in sexual immorality with a partner, with a 
boyfriend, girlfriend, you need to stop having sex or stop grinding or stop mutually masturbating, whatever it is that you're doing. You need to stop that and you need to think about getting married. If you're not willing to get married to them, then why are you mucking around with them in the bed? If money's the only thing that's stopping you from getting married, we can do marriages real cheap here at church. This is it's a nice building. We can just do it either before, after the service, whatever works for you. You're like you're wearing nice dresses now. Something. Anyway, we can do it real cheap. We need a month's notice, uh, I think legally, to get a wedding done in Auckland. Don't let money be the thing that keeps you in sexual sin. Do you have the gift of singleness? If you're currently unmarried, then the answer is yes. And if you're married right now, you have the gift of marriage. But if or when your marriage ends, probably through death, perhaps by some other means, well, you'll have the gift of singleness again. So let's make sure that we're using these gifts rather than coveting someone else's. The second reason that we care about singleness, the second reason that we care, sorry, about this whole relationship is that we we equate singleness with loneliness. And we think that marriage is the only way to find companionship. Unfortunately, it is the case that many singles are lonely. Perhaps that's you tonight. You're lonely, you're on your own. Many singles are not finding the intimacy that they crave. They're not finding the relational needs that we do have as humans being met. But hear me clearly tonight, singleness is not the problem there. And marriage is not the solution. You can be just as lonely in marriage as you are in singleness. The relationship status isn't the problem. The loneliness is the problem. And what's the solution? Well, our loneliness is finally met, not in marriage, but in our enjoyment of Christ and through His community. In Christ, we have a God who is personal and who sticks closer than anyone else in our shifting and changing world. To know Him as someone that you can talk to anywhere, anytime, about anything, man, that is a great comfort. That's a wonderful joy. So pursue communion with God through prayer and through His Word. Rather than getting to that lonely Friday night where you're sitting at home going, I'm here on my own, and using that night to watch a romantic movie or to look at porn, get out your Bible and read it for two hours. Have that communion with God. He's there, ready to speak to you, ready to hear from you. Now, there may be times when that communion is all that you have, and that will be satisfying and rich. But most times in our life, God's given us more than just that communion with Him. He's given us His community, the church. The people that are around us here now, this community is a place to find true and intimate friendship. I think friendship is an art that we've lost in our modern society. When we read the Bible, we find a view of friendship that's more than sharing contact details or some photos on Facebook. Now, you see those videos that are coming up now, you've been friends with so-and-so for five years, you've liked each other 42 times, you're like, no, this is not friendship. A friend in Scripture is someone who knows your soul, someone who doesn't just know lots about you, but who knows you. Consider Proverbs 18, verse 24. A man with many friends may be harmed, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Or Proverbs 27, verse 9, oil and incense bring joy to the heart. The sweetness of a friend is better than self-counsel. 
And these are just a couple of the Proverbs that give us a picture of friendship. And as we see this played out in different characters through Scripture, from David and Jonathan, who were so tight with one another, they made a pact to be friends for life. To Jesus and his inner circle of Peter, James and John. Or Paul and his whole company of close friends that he weeps with and labours with and rejoices with. There is a friendship in the Scripture that is deep and intimate. And I think we've lost that in the modern world. I wonder if, as you heard me describe those things of someone who knows your soul, your first thought was, yes, that's what I want in a marriage partner. That seems to be the only way we think that this need will be met. It ought not be. We can't hope to live wisely in God's world without such soul-to-soul friendships. So we need to push against the individualistic society that we live in now. We need to push against having lots of acquaintances and invest in making good, deep friendships. And that takes intentionality. We, we know that dating and marriage takes intentionality. We know that dating and marriage takes sacrifice. Friendship takes it just as much. Uh, I used to live next to some wonderful neighbours back on the Central Coast. Names were Mark and Rach. Perhaps one day they'll listen to this sermon online. That'd be great. Love them to become Christian at some point. Uh, Mark and Rachel were wonderful. They were both living far away from where they'd grown up. Mark had grown up 10 hours west in the Snowy Mountains. Rach had grown up in New York. Uh, They met on a Kentucky tour, got married, moved to the Central Coast. I remember early on in our friendship, I'd sent Mark a text saying, let's go kick the footy at the park. It was a sunny day outside. We went, kicked the footy around. And as we were chatting, he was talking about how Rach was finding it a bit hard to find friends. And he said, yeah, you know, Lachlan, when you sent me that message, I really didn't want to come out and kick the footy today. I was pretty happy just on the couch. But I said to Rach, this is what you need to do to have friendship. You need to say yes when you don't want to. So he's trying to encourage his wife to make that call, to say yes when you didn't want to, to make that sacrifice and show that intentionality to keep friendship. That's just a real small picture of the intentionality and sacrifice of friendship, but that's That's the seed of stronger friendships, friendships that will last lifetimes, the kinds of friends who will stick with you when you are sick, who will be by your bedside and clean up your vomit, because they're your friend, the kind of friend that you know you can call at any time of day or night, when you need a listening ear or when you've blown the tire in your car and you don't know how to change a tire, or when someone in your family has died, or when you've just got this really awesome experience and you want to share it with someone and you give them a call. We, we need friends like that. Friends who know our deepest fears and longings. Friends who are concerned for our godliness above all else. Do you, do you have friends like that? Are you willing to be a friend like that to someone else? I'm saying this to you whether you're married or unmarried at this point. We all need these friendships. And you can't choose your family, but you can choose your friends. There is an intentionality here of looking at all the people around and perhaps even having a conversation saying, look, I'd love to build on what we have as a friendship. As I moved country from Australia to New Zealand, I was aware that a lot of my acquaintances would just drift into the background. And having just heard some teaching on friendship from the Proverbs, I went, I need intentionality. And I called up two guys and said, guys, I'm about to move country, but can we call one another once a month, to touch base and to ask each other the hard questions. And I've got there two friendships that I trust will last a while. Now, why did I pick those two guys? 
because in our life so far, they demonstrated some of the, cap- uh, some of the characteristics of good friendship. Dependability. Uh, they would rebuke me and correct me when I was doing something wrong. They would tell me the truth, even when it would hurt me. And they had my back. They defended me. Do you have friends like that? Will you be a friend like that? Who's there for you when the rain starts to pour, like they've been there before, because you're there for them too. If someone shows these characteristics, invest in them. And I know as I say that, that that's easier for some than others. Like, perhaps you're like me and you hate people. Uh, <laughs> like, it's a real struggle. I, so much of my time, I do just want to be by myself on the couch or reading a book. But you need to step out of that and spend time with people. Marriage won't solve that loneliness. Friends will. Reason number three. Why do we care about singleness and marriage? We care because we've lost track of the time. In all sorts of settings, the time impacts our behaviour. You know, you play a sporting game very differently if it's early in the second half to if the game's gone into extra time. You know that the night before an exam is a very different time to early on in semester. The time changes behaviour. And when it comes to relationships, lots of Christians prioritise marriage because our whole ethic of relationships is driven by the creation order in Genesis 2. But with Jesus, the time has changed. We're no longer just in this time of creation. With Jesus, the end of the ages has come. Have a look at verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 7. And I say this, brothers, the time is limited. So from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. Those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the world in its current form is passing away. Time is short. Jesus' death and resurrection, they've brought upon us the end of the age. That's the present crisis that Paul's talking about in verse 26. Not some famine, not some local persecution. No, the world has gone into extra time. We're now in that phase where Jesus could come back any moment. Jesus could come back tonight, tomorrow, next week. Maybe not for another 2,000 years. With Him, a day is like a 1,000 years. But we're in extra time. And within this frame that we're in, this new age, we recognise that marriage is not eternal, but momentary. In Matthew 22, Jesus makes clear that in the new creation, when He returns, there'll be no marriages. Marriage will have fulfilled its ultimate purpose. You know, marriage is ultimately about being a signpost that points towards Christ and the church. On that final day when Jesus returns, He will come to wed His bride. Yes, guys, you will be married to Jesus. When that happens, all earthly marriages will have fulfilled their purpose. They'll have pointed to that reality and all of us will be caught up into an intimacy that is far deeper than any marriage, any friendship can offer. When Jesus returns to meet His bride, the world in its current form, Paul says, will pass away. House, car, Xbox, shoes, uni, degree, nice but they have the expiry date of fireworks. Fireworks, beautiful, and then they're gone. This world is not what we should be living for. 
So if you're here this evening and you're still deciding whether or not to give Jesus a place in your life, can I encourage you, in light of this truth in particular, that time is short, the world is passing away, tonight God is inviting you to fellowship with Jesus. As we heard earlier in this letter, in this chapter, God is inviting you, calling you to fellowship with Jesus, to benefit from all that He has won in His death. Forgiveness of sins could be yours. An eternal inheritance, victory over Satan and death, all could be yours. So turn to Jesus tonight and trust Him. Receive God's invitation. Now for all of us, since time is short, we live in the last days, Paul says, hold loose to the world. He's not encouraging in verse 29 there that uh, those who are married should live as though they're single, you know, just don't spend any time with your spouse and, and pretend that you're not even really married. Now we've heard earlier in the letter last week, that's not the way that married people should be. Rather, he's putting us within this tension. Yes, serve your marriage, honour it in a God-glorifying way, but on the other hand, don't fall into the trap of thinking that your marriage is everything. It's not. There's bigger stuff at play. And what's that bigger stuff? Well, we're all called to care about the things that God cares about. Have a look from verse 32. I apologise that up on the screen, there's a bit left out of this verse, so this is why it's important to check your Bible, not up there. Uh, I'll try to read it as it really is. I want you to be without concerns. An unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, how she may be holy to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Now I'm saying this for your own benefit, not to put a restraint on you, but because of what is proper, so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. What are the things that concerned you this past week? What dominated your cares and your thought life? We called here to be concerned for the things of the Lord, the things that will last for eternity, the things that God cares about here and now in this time that we live in between Jesus coming and return. What does God care about? The salvation of others, the spread of Jesus' kingdom, Jesus' fame throughout this land as, as we pour ourselves into proclaiming the good news of Jesus. God cares about our holiness as we partner with God who is transforming us back into His likeness and image, become loving and merciful and compassionate and just. Where are the things you should be concerned with in this time? The salvation of others and your holiness. And this is where we see the benefit of singleness. Because throughout I've been saying, Paul's like, singleness, marriage, who cares? But you notice there is a slight bias towards singleness in this passage. Paul's speaking from a point of being single himself, and when he's looking at being concerned for the things of the Lord, he's like, I see great benefit in this. Because being single gives you the freedom to pour yourselves out into those concerns of the Lord in an undistracted de devotion. You've got more time as a single for prayer, more time for evangelism, more flexibility to move to remote corners of the earth, like Hamilton, preach the gospel there in a new church plant. Not that you who are married, like you're not off the hook in this. You, you still have to be concerned for the things of the Lord. But there's a recognition that you have a particular constraint. It takes time and energy to 
glorify God in your marriage. To the unmarried here tonight, I suspect that's the majority of us. I do want to say here, it is possible to love singleness selfishly. It's possible to hear this and go, great, I can keep being single. I can keep eating whatever I want without anyone judging me. I can keep staying up till 3 a.m. in the morning playing computer games. No one will know. It's possible to love singleness for those selfish reasons. Don't do that. Don't do that. Use your singleness wisely. Make the most of this time, this gift that God has given you. Singleness is a gift with great benefits given this time that we live in. So give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Don't waste your singleness. Now we're going to take some questions. But before we do that, keep sending those questions in via text. I want to introduce you through a video to a woman who who understands what we've been looking at tonight. She understands Paul's message. Her her name is Mavis. Uh, The video was shot back in 2010, so she says on there that she's 74. She's now 80. She's been unmarried her whole life. And she's cultivated a group of friends, just like we've been talking about. There's six of them that meet weekly and have for years of their life. One of those friends used to be my boss. Uh, Mavis, I introduce you to her because she prays for me. She prays for us as a church regularly. So enjoy getting to know her through this video. What? Is it going to work out? Yes. I have been a Christian, I think, ever since I was born. So I'm now 74, so it's been a long time. Well, I was fortunate enough to be uh, born into a Christian family. It was only my mother and father because I'm an only child. I was only three when the war started, and when I was four, I was evacuated. But I went with my gas mask and my teddy bear and my Bible storybook, which had pictures. And I knew that if I died during the war, or my parents, which was far more likely, then we would be with Jesus. And I never, ever had any doubts about that. All the way through my childhood, I knew that Jesus was, I guess, my Lord, I don't know, but I just knew that he was there. There are times when it has been really, really difficult um, to remain true to Jesus. One of them was uh, I was to be married, and, um, and I knew that Jesus would just be on the periphery. He wouldn't be able to be the absolute centre of our life, and so I called that off. I've had other jobs when I've been I've been offered jobs where I, again I know maybe Jesus would be there, but not to be central in my life, and I've stood back. And I have had Christian people tell me how stupid I was, and that's very very hard when your Christian friends tell you that you're silly, you're stupid, and they give you advice which is not Christ-centered. It might be good sort of Christian advice, but it's not with Jesus absolutely at the centre. You know, people have asked me, me, how do you know which is the right thing to do? And I I don't know that there's any, there's no formula or anything like that. You just have to to trust um, and to keep reading your Bible and praying and and have Christian friends. and it's, it's just amazing. Oh,
I can remember walking down the steps uh, at Chatswood Railway Station and there was a big um, text on the wall in a glass case and it said, come to me all ye that are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's the knowing that I'm yoked, that that being yoked to Jesus is very important. You know, take my yoke upon you. Now you can have Jesus in your life, but unless you're actually yoked to Jesus, um, Jesus is just sort of on the sideline. At the end of the day, a good thing to do is, when you're getting into bed at night, sort of say to the Lord, what have you got out of my day today? Um, and then it makes you think back. What was really Christ-centered in my life? Did I say something to something, did I do something? Or have I just gone through the day being a Christian, but it wasn't really, God didn't get much out of the day. Wonderful lady, and you can hear how she understands this stuff, can't you? It's all about being Christ-centered. Whether you're single or married, your life is all for the glory of God, that he might be as famous as he should be in our world. So think seriously about staying single for life. If you do want to marry, you're free to marry. You're not sinning. Both are gifts from God. But do think seriously about uh, staying single for life. Time's short, so devote yourself to God. Let's hear some questions. Paul says, he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So does it mean if you are single, you should not aspire to marry? Why did then God create the institution of marriage and say that it's not good for man to be alone? Wonderful. Uh, as I just encouraged you right then, if you are currently single, yeah, think seriously about staying that way. Uh, why, why did God create the institution of marriage? Um, as God created the world, there was a need for humanity to fill the earth and subdue it. That was part of God's plan. And so God created complementary male and female who would have the capacity to reproduce, fill the earth, subdue it. When we read in Genesis 2 that it's not good for man to be alone, one man on his own cannot fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, one man on his own cannot multiply. There is a relational need that we as humans have. We're not created to be isolated individuals. You lock a human up in a room on their own for any length of time, they go crazy. Uh, that's why isolation is punishment in our prisons. Uh, but that relational need is not met in marriage exclusively. It is met in friendship, as I was saying earlier. So I think as we read there in Genesis 2 that it's not good for man to be alone, that's particularly talking about for this task of filling the earth, but the relational need that we have is one that we can meet in deep, intimate friendship, an art and practice that the world has lost. How are we to find someone to marry when we are told, do not seek a wife? We assume singleness until someone comes along. Yeah, I've been pondering this a little bit through the week, uh, particularly in the way that our world now has new forms of connectivity. You know, there was a time when you lived in a small village and there wasn't someone there to marry, well, you didn't and singleness was there. Now we have forms of online dating, ways that we can meet other people. Do we pursue those things if there's not someone in the immediate vicinity uh, to be pursuing? Um, I should answer the first question first there, shouldn't I? Do not seek a wife. Uh, Paul is clear throughout this chapter. He's writing attention. I hope you hear that. 
He wants to say into the context of the Corinthians where they were saying, actually, to be Christian, you've got to stay single. It seems, as we read from verse 26 and verse 36 to 37, that they were compelling people not to get married. That's why he has to say in verse 37, if someone is under no compulsion, has settled the matter in his own mind, has control over his will, then it's okay not to marry. Later on, I think it's Thessalonians, we read of churches that were being really bad and they were uh, forcing people to abstain from marriage. So do not hear me tonight, do not hear Paul tonight saying, you must not marry. Hear Paul giving you wisdom from God. Wisdom is not command. Wisdom is ways for negotiating and navigating the world that we're in. And Paul says, look at the time that we're in. In this time, there is benefit to staying single. So that's the context in which you want to say, uh, don't seek a wife. They've taken the question away from me. Now I can't answer the other part. Have I already, do we assume singleness until someone comes along? Yeah, I think you do in that context. I think you go, I'm single right now. How can I devote myself to God? And as I'm pursuing that, as I'm putting Jesus at the center of my life, uh, God might bring someone alongside you that's within your friendship circle. I think Tim Keller in his book, Meaning of Marriage, which we should have on the bookshelf, is helpful in this regard. Marriage is an extension of friendship. It's not a different thing. So as you're building those networks of friends, there might be someone within that that you go, actually, you're not a bad person to marry. We could take this friendship, extend it into a marriage. That would be my answer there. Next question. What if you want to be someone's friend and they don't want to be yours? And what if someone wants to be your friend but you don't want to be theirs? Should we keep trying on both sides? Uh, for a time, but no. Uh, this can be really hard. There's as much pain in failed friendships as in any failed relationship. Um, I speak as one who went through high school. I didn't have friends till year 11. You know, 7 to 10, I was on my own. It was terrible. Uh, I know the pain of this. Uh, it's not pleasant. In those times, you take that communion that you find with God. Go to God. He's there for you. He knows you. He knows what you're feeling. And He's there to hear anything. And then look for friends who are there for you. And, and I do hope and trust that we as a church community will be providing that for one another. I hope that this doesn't stay as someone's experience for too long amongst us. That we are those who are willing to offer friendship. Because we might not share the same hobbies, we might not share the same interests, but we share Christ together. We're on the same mission. And that is the deepest passion on which a friendship can be built. So I do hope that that doesn't stay your experience for too long for whoever's asked that one tonight. Next one. How can the... Are we up to... No. Where'd that one go? As an introvert, how can I demonstrate good friendship? Friendships, friendships even if I don't always feel like being <laughs> about people. Um, yeah. It, it takes energy. I think the thing with being an introvert, it's, it's recognising how you energise yourself. Uh, that's what introversion is. It's I get energized when I'm spending time by myself. It doesn't mean that you can't spend time with other people. It just means that you recognize that's going to be a drain. And so building those patterns into the way that you're using your time so that you are having time with people and then you're not... Um, I, think, I think we can fall into thinking that we're resting when we're not really resting. Know what it is that actually makes you rest. Watching a TV show might not actually be restful for you. You might think it is. But maybe there's something else that you can do when you're in your alone time that will energise you more. Perhaps that's reading the Bible. Perhaps that's going for a walk outside. Perhaps that's 
something else that might be a bit more refreshing. So know what it is that actually energizes you so that you can then spend that time with people. And it is hard when you get a text message saying you, you want to hang out to say yes. Like, yeah, I know that pain, but you need to invest in it and it will pay off. Having these friendships that are deep and intimate, that are seeking to build you up as you seek to build them up, and that is worth the energy. So is there any point to marriage other than sex? Uh, Good question. I thought Rowan answered this one last week. Do I have to answer it again? Um, Is there any point to marriage other than sex? Again, I've been wrestling with this through the week. Uh, For those who don't know, I have been dating a girl for nine months. If she's listening to this sermon, I'm going to be careful what I'm saying. Um, <laughs> but I've, this is why it's been such an interesting time to wrestle with what God's Word is saying to me and go, what, what am I doing in this dating relationship? Uh, I, I'm going to share the story. I bring that up because before I moved to New Zealand, I was walked around Coogee by her mentor, who's a 76-year-old former minister. Um, and he was doing the whole, what are your intentions with this girl conversation? It's great. Uh, But he said to me, marriage is about making babies and raising them together. That was his take. Uh, I'm still wrestling with whether that is the complete answer. Um, I think as you read Keller on this, he's helpful in going, yes, this is an extension of friendship. Marriage has, at its core, all that great stuff that a friendship has. Seeking the good of the other, building them up, encouraging them, even as we saw in Hebrews, trying to spur them on towards love and good deeds. That's friendship. And marriage is then an extension of that, that is a a lifelong commitment, saying, I'm going to be your friend for good, and I'm going to seek your good for the rest of my life. We're going to share this all together. With that added uh, task, what's the word, vocation of producing babies and raising them together. Now, I might be wrong on that. I've got more. I'm going to pick up Christopher Ash's book, Married for God, tonight, and read that on my next break. Uh, I've got more thinking to do there. But there's my current kind of thinking from the wisdom that I've heard. That's it. All right. Let me pray to bring all this to a close. I hope you've heard Paul clearly tonight. He's saying singleness, marriage, both are good options. You can be a full, satisfied Christian in both. If you want to marry, do it. But seriously consider staying single because the time is short. We need to be devoted to God. Let me pray. Father, thank you that you are honest with us. Thank you that you tell us the time that we're in so that we can live wisely in this world. Do help us to trust you. Do help us to trust you more than we trust ourselves. Help us to trust that your plan for our lives is better than the plan we might imagine for our lives. It's hard to do. We, we dream, we have plans, we, we've built up this picture of our life for so long and sometimes it's hard to give that up. But help us to trust that you and your infinite wisdom, you who created us and knit us together in our mother's womb, you who knows all the days that you've ordained for us in your book, help us to trust that you actually know what's best for us and that you will give us what is good. And so may we, as we go out of here tonight into another week, may we do all things with Christ at the centre that he might be as famous as he deserves to be. And he does deserve to be famous. He is the son who has bought us at a price. Help us to live for Him. Amen.